Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's time for Joyce's Thought of the Day on News Talk 850 WFTL. On today's No Restraint podcast, I will do something that I try not to do. But I just want to get to the point, and I want to use all the expert testimony that's out there. So I'm actually going to be sharing with you something that came out in the free press just yesterday, or maybe it was early this morning. And it was a confessional by a woman who was working in a hospital in what is considered a hospital where gender transitions are very, very much front and center. And this person had guts. And so she blew the whistle on what was going on and she stopped participating. So I'm gonna share her words with you because I think they're that important. And perhaps you got to read the investigation about detransitioners that was published just this weekend in the New York Times. It is very sobering. And it's very in-depth, very comprehensive, and you should read it because it's also a piece that we're pretty sure, and certainly the folks at the Free Press are confident, it would have never made it into the New York Times were it not for independent publications like the Free Press and some others, Alex Berenson, Naomi Wolf. They're writing investigative journalist pieces on medical stories that nobody wanted to cover. They're politically sensitive and they're hot potato issues, but they're very important. And we better, we better start paying attention to what's going on in this gender affirming care industry that has sprung up because it is harming vulnerable young people. I'm proud that I was one of the first people to speak with Abigail Schreier, happens that she went to law school with my son, and he had a lot of respect for her, even if they were politically different. And he told me to read her book, which was amazing, and really began this open conversation that America is having, not just America, but Europe as well. You know, I stand alongside Hannah Barnes and Hadley Freeman and Helen Joyce and uh, Leon Sapir, Abigail, Jesse Singal, Kathleen Stock, Quillette, and others who, they were the ones who took all the arrows and slings so that the mainstream press, like the New York Times, could finally start reporting on what's really going on in this gender-affirming care industry. And that's what it is. Don't kid yourself. This is an industry, and they're making a ton of money, and they're harming young people. And we can't just sit by and let that happen. The change that's coming about, you can't deny anymore. There's lawsuits from young people who say they have suffered the consequences of these life-altering treatments. 
So this piece is by a therapist by the name of Tamara Pitsky, who said that she, along with other whistleblowers, could not continue doing what she knew was directly indicative of an industry and not a medical professional ideology. And she couldn't go along anymore with the pressure that she was receiving to transition her patients. These are her words. She says, I know from firsthand experience what hard times are. Though I had a happy childhood, I was raised as the middle child by working class parents in Washington state. And my mom died of ovarian cancer when I was 22 years old. And after that, my family fell apart. I felt lost and alone. And I decided to become a therapist because I didn't want anyone to go through what I had, feeling like no one on the planet cares about them. At least they can say their therapist does. I earned my master's in social work from the University of Washington in 2012, and I have worked as a therapist for over a decade in the Puget Sound area. And most recently, I was employed by Multicare, one of the largest hospital systems in the state. These are the words of a therapist who is telling the truth. For the six years I was there, I worked with hundreds of clients. But in mid-January, I left my job because of what I will go on to describe. The therapeutic relationship is a special one. We are the original safe space where people are able to explore their darker feelings and painful experiences. The job of the therapist is to guide a patient to self-understanding and sound mental health. This is a process that requires careful assessment and time not snap judgments and confirmation of a patient's worldview. But in the past year, I noticed a concerning new trend in the field. I was getting the message from my supervisors that when a young person I was seeing expressed discomfort with their gender, the diagnostic term is gender dysphoria, I should throw out all of my training, no matter the patient's history or other mental health conditions that could be complicating the situation, I was simply to affirm that the patient was transgender and even approve the start of a medical transition. I believe this rise of affirmative care for young people with gender dysphoria challenges the very fundamentals of what therapy is supposed to provide. I'm a 36-year-old single mother of three young kids, all under the age of six. I'm terrified of speaking out, but that fear pales in comparison to my strong belief that we can no longer medicalize youth and cause them potentially irreversible harm. The three patients that I describe explain why I'm taking the risk of coming forward. Last spring, a new client who at 13 years old had one of the most extreme and heartbreaking life stories I've ever heard. And for the sake of clarity, we're going to refer to all patients by their biological sex. The patient's mother has bipolar disorder and was so abusive to the patient that the mother was given a restraining order. The patient was sexually assaulted by an older cousin, by one of her mother's boyfriends, and also once at school by a classmate. Her diagnoses included depression, PTSD, anxiety, intermittent explosive disorder, and autism. She's being raised by her mother's 
ex-boyfriend, not the one who assaulted her. The year before they started seeing her, when she was 11, she was hospitalized for talking about committing suicide. Later that year, a pediatrician diagnosed her with gender dysphoria after she started to question her gender. The pediatrician referred her to Mary Bridge Children's Gender Healthcare, whose clinicians recommended she take medicine to suppress her periods and that she think about starting testosterone. I'm just trying to figure out how you get an 11, 12, or 13-year-old to think about anything besides maybe Justin Bieber. Mary Bridge Multicare's Pediatric Hospital runs the gender clinic for minors and employs nurses, social workers, dietitians, and endocrinologists who provide gender-affirming care, which includes prescribing hormones to young patients who simply question their gender. In order to get that prescription, patients first need a recommendation letter from a therapist. Because Mary Bridge is a part of Multicare, their patients are often referred to therapists like Tamara, who are in the system. In an April 2022 blog post, a Mary Bridge social worker wrote that the gender clinic's referrals increased from less than five a month in 2019 to more than 35 a month in 2022. In May of 2022, the clinic received a $100,000 donation from Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute to, quote, study healthcare disparities, end quote, in transgendered youth. The clinic operates in Washington, one of the states with some of the most lenient legislation on gender transition for youth. In May of 2023, the state legislature passed the law guaranteeing that youth seeking a medical gender transition can stay at Washington shelters, and the shelters are not required to notify their parents. Because of this patient's autism, it was difficult to engage in introspective conversations. During the first visit, she showed extremely sadistic and graphic pornographic videos on her phone to the therapist. Standing next to her, hunched over, hyperfixated on the videos as she rocked back and forth. She said during one session that she watched horror and porn movies growing up because they were the only ones available in her house. She shows up to a therapy session in disheveled, loose-fitting clothes, her hair greasy, her eyes staring down at the ground, her face covered by a COVID mask, almost like a protective layer. She went by a boy's name, but she never raised gender dysphoria with the therapist directly. The one time she said she would get mad at the sound of her own voice because it sounds too girly. When she was asked how she felt about an upcoming appointment at the gender clinic, she said she didn't even know she had one. In between scrolling through videos on her phone, she said she cried every night in bed and felt insane. She described the time when she was eight years old and her mother nearly killed her sister. She remembered her mother being taken away. At times, she would age regress, she said, by watching Teletubbies and sucking on pacifiers. When she started seeing the therapist, she had recently threatened to blow up the school which of course resulted in her expulsion. 
You can't solve all of her problems, and you can't probably make her feel better in just a few therapy sessions. So the initial goal was to make her feel comfortable opening up to the therapist to make the therapy room a place where she was heard and felt safe. She also wanted to try and protect her from falling prey to outside influences from social media, her peers, and even the adults in her life. With a patient like this, with so many intersecting and overwhelming problems, and with such a tragic history of abuse, it would take the first three sessions to get her feeling more comfortable to even talk to the therapist and to understand the dimensions of her problems. But when her guardian was called to schedule a fourth appointment, he asked to write a letter recommending cross-sex hormone treatment. That is, at age 13, she was to start taking testosterone. Such a letter from the therapist begins the process of medical transition for a patient. In Washington State, that's all it takes. A few visits with a therapist and a letter often written using a template provided by one's superiors for minors to undergo the irreversible treatments that patients must take for the rest of their lives. I was scared for this patient. She had so many overlapping problems that needed addressing. It seemed like malpractice to abruptly begin her on a medical gender transition that could quickly produce permanent changes. So, the therapist emails a program manager in the department at Multicare and outlines the concerns. The manager wrote back that the client's trauma history has no bearing on whether or not she should receive hormone treatment. Quote, there is no valid evidence-based peer-reviewed research that would indicate that gender dysphoria arises from anything other than gender including trauma, autism, and other mental health conditions. She also warned that there is a potential in causing harm to a client's mental health when restricting access to gender-affirming care and suggested that the therapist examine her personal beliefs and biases about trans kids. She then reported the therapist to Multicare's risk management team, who removed the client from her care and placed her with a new therapist. I'm sure the new therapist was more inclined to go with the flow. A risk manager's job is to minimize the hospital's liability. But in this case, they deemed that the concerns raised by the therapist posed a greater risk to the client than giving her a life-altering procedure with no proven long-term benefit. The therapist said she shouldn't have been surprised by this. Just a few months earlier, in September of last year, she was one of over 100 therapists and behavioral specialists at the Multicare hospital system required to attend mandatory training on gender-affirming care. As hard as it is to believe, given the work they do, she hadn't really heard about gender-affirming care before that moment. So she needed to learn more. Every night in the week leading up to the training, she searched online for information about gender-affirming care. After putting her own kids to bed, she sat glued to the computer screen, losing sleep, horrified at what she found. 
I discovered that neither puberty blockers nor cross-sex hormones, testosterone or estrogen, were approved by the FDA as a treatment for gender dysphoria. In fact, prescribing these treatments to kids can have drastic side effects, including infertility, loss of sexual function, increased risk of heart attacks, stroke, cardiovascular disease, cancer, bone density problems, blood clots, liver toxicity, cataracts, brain swelling, and even death. While gender clinicians claim hormonal treatments improve their patient's psychological health, the studies on that are few and highly disputed. She found that these experiencing gender dysphoria, these young people, are up to six times more likely to also be autistic, and they are also more likely to suffer from schizophrenia, trauma, and abuse. The research also implies that the dramatic rise in these diagnoses across the West likely have a strong element of social contagion. In children ages 6 to 17, there was a 70% increase in diagnoses of gender dysphoria in the U.S. from 2020 to 2021. That's one year. In Sweden, there was a 1,500% increase in these diagnoses among girls 13 to 17 from 2008 to 2018. Yet countries that were once the pioneers of gender transition medicine are now starting to backtrack. In 2022, England announced it will close its only gender clinic after an investigation uncovered subpar medical care, including findings that some patients were rushed toward gender transitions. Sweden and Finland undertook comprehensive analysis of the state of gender medicine and recommended restrictions on transition of minors. So the therapist decided that it was potentially dangerous to her career and to her personally to ask questions about the findings she had discovered online. The training she attended laid out an affirming model of gender care, from pronouns and social transition to hormone treatments and surgical intervention. In order for children to be diagnosed with gender dysphoria, the training stated, patients must meet six of eight characteristics, ranging from a strong desire, insistence of being another gender, to strong preference for cross-gender toys and games. It was made abundantly clear to everybody in attendance that these recommendations were best practice at Multicare and that the hospital would not tolerate anything less. When the leader of the training brought up hormone treatments, I shakily tapped the unmute button on Zoom and asked why 70-80% of female adolescents diagnosed with gender dysphoria have prior mental health diagnoses. She flashed a look of disgust as she warned me against spreading misinformation on trans kids. Soon the chat box started blowing up with comments directed at me. One colleague stated it was not appropriate to bring politics into this, 
and another wrote that I was demonstrating a hostility towards trans folks, which is a direct violation of the Hippocratic Oath, and recommended I seek additional support and information so as not to harm trans clients. As soon as I closed my laptop, I burst into tears, she said. I care so deeply about my clients that even thinking about this now makes her cry. I couldn't understand how her colleagues, who are supposed to be her teammates, could be so quick to villainize me. I also wondered if maybe my colleagues were right and if I were the one who had gone insane. Later, my boss reached out to me and told me it was inappropriate of me to raise these questions, telling me that a training session was not a proper forum. When I tried to present the evidence that caused me concern, the lack of long-term studies, the devastating side effects, she told me she didn't have time to read it. In retrospect, this ideology has been growing in power for a long time. I remember in 2019 seeing signs of how gender dysphoria arose among many of my most vulnerable female clients, all of whom struggled with previous psychological problems. In 2019, I started seeing a 16-year-old client after her pediatrician referred her for anxiety, depression, and ADHD. When I first met her, the therapist said she had long blonde hair covering her eyes to the point you could barely see her face. It was like she was going through the world trying to be invisible. In 2020, during the pandemic, she told me she had started reading online a lot about gender and said she started feeling like she wasn't a girl anymore. Around this time, her anxiety became so debilitating that she couldn't leave her house, not even to go to school. After taking a year off school during the pandemic, she enrolled in an alternative school for kids struggling with mental health. I was relieved that she was making friends for the first time and seemed to be feeling a lot better. Then she started using they, he pronouns, identified as pansexual, and replaced the skirts and fishnet stockings she often wore with disheveled and baggy clothes. Her long hair became shorter and shorter. She started wearing a binder to flatten her breasts. She tried out a few different names before settling on one that's gender neutral. The official diagnosis I gave her was adjustment disorder, an umbrella term often applied to young people who are having a hard time coping with difficult and stressful circumstances. It's the type of diagnosis that doesn't follow a child forever. It implies that mental distress among kids is often transient. She came out as transgender to her family in 2021. Her mother was supportive, but her dad wasn't. Regardless, she went to her pediatrician seeking a referral to a gender clinic. In 2022, she went to Mary Bridge Children's Gender Health Clinic for the first time where the clinicians informed her and her parents that if she didn't receive hormone replacement therapy, she could be at increased risk for anxiety, depression, and worsening of mental health psychological trauma, according to the records. Her dad refused to start his daughter on testosterone, and so all the clinic could do was prescribe birth control to stop her period due to her menstrual dysphoria or distress over getting her period, which is something I thought all teenage girls experienced. Five months later, she swallowed a bottle of pills, and her mother had to rush her to the emergency room. 
By early 2023, the client logged into weekly sessions, which started happening on Zoom, and said she identified as a wounded male dog. She explained to me that this was her xenogender, a concept she had discovered online, which references gender identities that go beyond human understanding of gender. She said she felt she didn't have all of the right appendages and that she wanted to start wearing ears and a tail to truly feel like herself. I was stunned. All I could do was silently nod along. And after the session, I mailed my colleagues looking for advice. I want to be accepting and inclusive of all that, but I guess I just don't understand at what point, if ever, a person's gender identity is indicative of a bigger issue. I asked them, is there ever a time where acceptance of a person's identity isn't freely given? The consensus from her colleagues was that it wasn't a big deal. It sounds like this isn't something that's broken, one colleague wrote, so let's not try to fix it. If someone told me they use a litter box instead of a toilet and they were happy with it and it's part of their life that brings them fulfillment, then great. I might think it's weird, but then again, not my life. That's baffling and alarming. Unquestioningly affirming something so crazy as you're a wounded dog. At what point does a change in identity represent a mental health concern and not something to be celebrated and affirmed? Fortunately, the client never brought up her xenogender again. She also didn't end up on testosterone due to her father's disapproval. So let's just keep this conversation to ourselves. Another female patient who transitioned as a teen serves as a warning of what happens when we passively accept the idea that gender transition will entirely resolve a patient's mental health issues. The client is now 23 and rarely leaves the house, spends most of the day in bed playing video games, and envisions no path to working or functioning in the outside world due to a variety of mental health problems. In 2016, this patient was diagnosed with autism, anxiety, and gender dysphoria. Later, the diagnosis grew to include depression, Tourette syndrome, and a conversion disorder. In 2018, at age 17, the Mary Bridge Gender Health Clinic prescribed testosterone despite the fact that this patient is diabetic, and one of the hormone side effects is that it might increase insulin resistance. The patient's mother, who has another transgender child, strongly encouraged it. This patient now has a wispy mustache and a deepened voice, but does not pass as male. It turns out that testosterone, which will be prescribed for life, did not relieve the patient's other mental illnesses. The biggest fear that we should have about the gender-affirming practices in the industry is that it causes irreversible damage to the patient, especially when they are vulnerable people who come at their lowest moments in life, who entrust the mental and medical professionals with their health and safety only for it to be violated. And yet, instead of treating them as you would patients with any other mental health condition, we bully them and abandon a professional judgment. This is a crisis 
This is happening right now throughout the West. And if people don't speak up like Tamara Pietsky, this therapist, then this may go on for a lot longer and destroy a lot more young lives. Thanks for listening to the No Restraint Podcast. Pass it around and also make sure you tune in next time. May God bless you and may God bless the United States of America. Get Joyce's Thought of the Day anytime. Subscribe to her podcast right now on the all-new 850 app and at 850wftl.com.